0: Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Rees. Today is about music from military bands in Turkey and the influence of that music on Western classical music. And in wine, Jill talks about the history and influence of using clay as a vessel, and we uh, taste Turkish wine as an example. Check out patreon.com slash and for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music.
1: Good day, Emily Reese. Good day, Jill Mott. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. How many people do you think went to the bar last night?
0: <sighs> Apparently more than usual.
1: The biggest bar day of the year is the day that precedes Thanksgiving. I love that. I love it too. It (laughs) blows my mind. You know, people need that. Of course, yes, people use the excuse, well, they don't want to cook because they're cooking all day on Thursday. Yep. We know the real reason. Oh, because you're with family. (laughs) You're with (laughs) family for likely a long weekend. Yeah. Lubricate them up. Lubricate them. It's great. Love it. So... Happy Thanksgiving. We're going to talk about um, some, as as you put it before when we were emailing back and forth, mm-hmm. maybe a little trite. Maybe a little, but... But I think it works. You're going to talk about Janissary... Music. Music and its influence on mm-hmm. Western orchestral music.
0: Yes. Awesome. I am, yep. Yeah. Being Janissaries being elite soldiers from the Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey.
1: And through something military, we get different instruments in classical music. And I was going to go towards like, how can we take military things and turn them into like wine tastes of today? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go on the expat rosé, flavor for rosé, and the expat flavor for absinthe. And I decided to choose something that dealt with turkish wine because i thought that was fascinating but i decided to talk about the movement you're talking about the movement of janissary influence and i decided to talk about movement of clay yeah where it started where it is today and how the use of clay has moved throughout time which is and and just the vessel itself which is really pertinent to Wine nowadays, especially in the natural wine movement, um, but just eye opening that we can go so far back in history and still find one of the best vessels ever used for winemaking.
0: Yeah, That's because people like ferment their wine in the clay and stuff.
1: And yes, and stuff, and stuff. Yeah, yes, all good things. All right. Do you? Uh, so speaking of, I don't know if you uh, lubricated because it was Wednesday night, but uh, do you want to? Because it's Thursday morning. Yes. <laughs> I would love to. So I brought a really cool wine from the center of Turkey, from, um, we'll call it Central Southern Anatolia is, is the name of the wine region um, in Central Turkey. The winery Galveri is literally doing almost entirely submerged or half-submerged clay vessels. Uh, he's using them for fermentation and aging. And... This guy is so popular in his home country and abroad that his wines, like the finest sommeliers that are into like really cool stuff, are driving like seven plus hours to get to his winery to be able to buy wine because you can't legally ship wine um, around the country in Turkey. And so many people in his village are like, it's called, um, and pardon the pronunciation, I believe it's called Guzelyurt is the name of the village. So many people are like, oh, you're making wine and that's terrible. But guess who visits them at night when the sun <laughs> goes down? Uh huh. Villagers go there at night. Wow. Tourists go there by day. Well, I see. tourists, I mean, wine folk that are in yep. the know. Yeah. Um, so I brought this version of um, he makes a grape native grape called Kelechik or Kelechik Karasi and it's a very low tannic very high acid grape but mm-hmm. he does it entirely in clay this vessel is over 200 years old what? from Armenia He found it uh, just north of where he lives a few hundred miles and how do they get the juice out of the clay pot We'll talk about that. Don't get okay. too ahead of ourselves. To All scores right. and to pours. To scores and pours. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. What do you think of Kalache Karasi? You are
0: correct that it is low tannin and high acid.
1: Woo. Whew. No Very wonder tart.
0: No
1: mm-hmm. wonder why wines were adulterated back in the day. <laughs> if this is any representation of wines made hundreds if not thousands of years ago, yeah. you know, we could add some blackberries to that, maybe some honey. Maybe something, some mm-hmm. goose. Anyway, corn syrup, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious. It'd be great with uh, rip roaring rich Thanksgiving food. That's for sure.
0: Really? What yeah. is?
1: Okay. Well, well, we'll talk more about um, not only how it's made, but we'll we'll talk about the influence of clay. We just we just thought we'd wet our whistle. Yeah. Can wet we wet ta- our whistle? Wet our whistle. Can we talk Janissaries, please?
0: Well, I was going to um, talk about the influence that uh, military bands from the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the influence that their music had on Western classical music. Um, Janissary bands were around for centuries. And, uh, Can we ja- talk
1: about what Janissaries yep, are? I was just about to. Okay.
0: Janissaries were like an elite bodyguard unit in the Od- Ottoman Empire, and they were kidnapped from villages. They were usually Christian like they had their own social class and they were um they just kind of were like their whole own uh culture of of people that that worked for the you know empire and these bands they had these bands and a lot of times there were janissaries in the bands some it wasn't necessarily that they were there were janissary bands but there were also just turkish military marching bands and other European militaries then adopted that idea of having marching bands too. Because it was just like, oh, well, we can do that too. But anyway, we can sound
1: triumphant, we can gather. We can impress. Yes. You know, this is yes. how we're going
0: to impress the village we just conquered is to play this concert of our music for you with our instruments kind of thing. Yep. Um and, and some of those instruments were either mimicked in a certain style within the Western classical world. Uh, in the classical era, which was in the uh, mid to late 1700s, they used instruments to mimic Tur- Turkish style, and then there were instruments that were pretty much from from the, those bands that that kind of came in into the into the being. So, so yeah,
1: I don't know. So, what are some of the instruments? E.R.? The,
0: the Janissary bands always had bells, and they would have cymbals. They had big bass drums that you can envision someone marching with, that, you know, it's kind of like sideways, but they also marched with like littler kettle drums, which are kind of bowl shaped drums with uh, tunable heads. So you can change the pitch of the, or the tone of the drum, uh, which you might think of a timpani then. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's like a, that's a non mobile version. Yeah. of these kettle drums that the, the Janissaries played. They played shams, which are not the most attractive sounds. I mean, compared <laughs> to, to... a Western ear, right? To a to Western, Western ear. ear. And so some of the instruments that were then used in the Western classical uh, orchestras and that kind of came from these Janissary bands, you could think of uh, the bass drum, um, uh, cymbals, they would use to Im- kind of suggest a turkish sound and the triangle although the triangle was a- around for a very very long time but they used the triangle to kind of comp- and by they i'm talking about composers western classical composers in the classical era so people like mozart mozart haydn and beethoven used instruments like bass drum cymbals triangle uh and even piccolo to a certain extent to Suggest a Turkish style of music. Let's listen to some because um, there are instruments that composers used to, you know, suggest a Turkish sound. But there are also like rhythmic elements and musical other musical elements, like a lot of grace notes, which are like bra da da bra da Right? It's those okay. those beginning kind of flourishy kind of things. So we'll listen to a very famous example that Beethoven wrote. Uh, for music for a play called "The Ruins of Athens. And so this is just a, a known as the Turkish March by Beethoven. Here we go. So you hear it there's stress on beat one, three, one, two, three, one. Three. Yep. One, two, three. And if you watch Janissary and then you've got bands march, triangle,
1: bang, 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 yeah. bang, bang. Yeah. But if you
0: watch Janissary bands march,
1: yeah.
0: That's how they march. Yeah. One, two, one, two, three. They're not marching one, two, three, four. They're marching step, 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 step. And so you hear that in in a lot of Western classical Turkish music, Whoa, if that makes cool. sense. Yeah. yeah. And then you can hear the cymbals and the triangle and the grace notes.
1: And is the bass drum any part of that? that For sure. Okay.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's one example, and wow. we'll hear many more throughout. Very throughout. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so how did Clay start? I'm, gonna, well, I'm actually going to take another drink of this delicious wine first.
1: As you as you should. Um, so clay got its beginnings. We are pretty certain that even though the first vessel for wine was found in the Republic of Georgia in around 6,000 BCE, they've dated it to, um, it was a clay vessel. They know due to the tartaric acid on the inside of the vessel through various types of um, scientific deciphering like liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry that um, there were in fact grapes and wine in this vessel. Okay. If there was wine in the vessel in 6,000 BCE, it was likely hundreds if not thousands of years before that clay was being used for wine. Oh, yeah, Like yeah. when we have a relic of some sort or a written example of something, that means that likely... Thousands of years before it was happening, Mm -hmm. you know, and now we found this. So um, we can trace clay's origins back to 6,000 BCE in the southern, southeastern part of um, the Republic of Georgia. And through antiquity, we see clay vessels being found. Just most recently um, for beer, there's been clay, a lot of different clay vessels and tools found in China from 5,000 or Yeah, about 5,000 BCE, 2,500 BCE. We have other relics from other places. It's incredible how many vessels we have for wine through the ages that are dedicated to, like, clay winemaking. Nice. Um, I think in northern Iran, there were were resonated wines. Oh, like Like,
0: as in resin. Yes, yep, yep. found
1: because resin is a preservative, and they found – tartaric acid, resin, and more in these vessels from northern Iran. So we know that that's about 5,400, 5,000 BCE. Fast forward to a time that everybody's heard of because I think a a lot of people still, unless you're really into wine or into like old school wine or natural wine, you've heard of the Republic of Georgia Mm -hmm. Um, because the discoveries of northern Iran that was in the late 90s, The discoveries in Georgia have been in the last decade. We just kind of grow up thinking that like Italy and Greece are like the center of wine history. And that's because we just have a lot more documentation from that time and a lot more older pots that are still extant.
0: Well, and you can go into a liquor store and find access to a lot more Italian wine than you can Georgian wine. Of course, of course. Yeah, so we just have the skewed, I think, perspective that that's the, the birthplace of it.
1: Yep that's that's very true and so um if we fast forward to you know the surrounding what we'll call the birth of christ like you know a few hundred years before a few hundred years after and we could even stretch that certainly we're seeing different a lot of different sizes and shapes of clay which is when like i think it starts to become really interesting because you notice different the clay itself is really different um their different functions. Hmm. Um, so, I think that we could talk about some Turkish wine. Yeah. While I'm, you know, inter- to, to interrupt a little bit the talk of size and shape, because we'll yeah. get back there. So, this Turkish wine is, this guy is really, really great. He's traveling uh, the world when he can get to different natural wine fairs to talk about the importance of, you know, native Turkish varietals, the importance of clay and you know as emily just said like definitely acidic definitely low tannin he prefers clay because of clay's properties and mm. clay has is so different than stainless steel or even concrete or oak but i'll focus on oak and stainless as a kind of antithesis of of clay because i think they're the most polarizing
0: and these are all Fermentation vessels.
1: Yep, fermentation yeah. or age, aging vessels, yeah. yeah. So clay, for example, um, usually it's lined with some beeswax. So it, On the inside. On the inside, yeah. yeah. So it, it may be in direct contact, but a lot of times it's not because hmm. um, you want to inhibit a little bit of the flavor of clay and the porosity. But nevertheless, you're still going to have porous, you know, walls in clay vessels. The reason why clay is to many people and many proponents of clay, the superior vessel for aging and time-tested, obviously, mm-hmm. um, is that the exchange of oxygen, That's this is one point, the exchange of oxygen from when you put fresh grape must and or wine in any stage of fermentation or aging, you're going to have a transfer of oxygen between... Just due to how porous the clay is, okay, that doesn't happen in stainless steel. There's not an exchange right. of oxygen. And then in oak, it's the opposite. It like it, many people would say it's way too fast in oak because oak is a lot of times the barrels are smaller. They're more they're more porous due to their in their staves. You know, so that exchange is time tested. And the fact that um, think as humans, if you when you get cabin fever, it's because you can't breathe. Yeah. And when you're – think of when you're really cold and you kind of like – you're kind of all scrunched up like that. You're, you're at your best when you can relax, mm-hmm. when you can get some fresh air, be yeah. outside. Yeah, And wine is no different. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is the insulation capacity of clay is incredible when it's well done. So in most cellars in the fall and winter, it gets cold. Yeah. Well, you, the last thing you want is a fermentation that's going to stop – the yeast are going to get too cold and shut down. <gasps> so clay insulates and will keep those yeasts actively moving. Oh. But then when it gets too hot, like fermentations can kind of get hot and out of control, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, um, a little bit further. But clay keeps the ferment cool enough that the fermentation is like nice and a little bit elongated. Hmm. And so therefore, instead of think of when you like sprint out to do your marathon and you run like a mile, I think we've used that, I've used that analogy before on this podcast, you're not going to last too long. Mm -hmm. When you have a hot and heavy ferment, high temperatures really fast, you're going to get a lot of esters and you're going to have a lot of, um, your fermentation might end with kind of a a dumb wine. And I don't mean dumb, like stupid, dumb (laughs) in a way that just kind of. Muddled, you know, Okay. almost cooked, and and your esters might show that, okay. and it, a, a, just a courtship, you know, the, the <laughs> long think of the long, steady, um, slow moving. You have a lot more to learn from each other. Wine is that way too. If the fermentation is slow and has a certain amount of time, it will develop more complexities um and yeah for lack of i don't want to go too in deep into chemistry but yeah um so those are those are two interesting aspects of clay that are and that many people that use clay those are two of the big reasons why. That's why they like it so much? Yeah.
0: So you said that the clay is lined with beeswax or oak barrels lined with wooden barrels lined with things as well?
1: They're not. Nor- really? Normally what's so uh once a barrel is turned into or wood staves are turned into a barrel, they're toasted. Okay. at a level that if you want a lot of toasty oak flavor, flavor, you would toast to like a high toast. Okay. all the way down to if you want minimal Vanilla flavors, you'll do a lower toast. Okay. But when your barrel is brand new, you're going to use a ton of water to saturate it so it, you know, it it hydrates the staves so that your wine isn't leaking, so that your your oak flavor has been basically soaked out by this tea water, you know, this oak tea water that you're dumping out. Yeah. But, um, and as the years go, and you're putting wine in there year after year, mm-hmm. it's going to taste less and less like oak. Right. But you always have, I mean, people say that after th- four years you don't taste oak. I mm. taste oak in a 100-year-old oak, so I don't <laughs> know what, I mean, you can always tell that that influence is there. It's just how yeah. minute it is.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting.
1: <laughs> Where are we going
0: from here? Well, should we listen to some more examples? Yup. Yeah. <laughs> um well, let's listen to some other examples from, from the classical era.
1: Why? Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Why did these instruments become, like, have, has Beethoven or Haydn or anybody ever written about why they were inspired by these instruments? Why did they, they adopt them?
0: Well, uh, I think, you know, through, for instance, one of the famous examples from Haydn comes from his 100th symphony, which is called the Military Symphony. And Haydn's grandparents actually lived through a raid by an Ottoman army. And so, like, Haydn was well aware of (laughs) the tensions, militarily speaking, between the Austro-Hungarian or the Habsburg Empire or whatever you want to think of it, depending on the era, Mm -hmm. uh, and the Ottoman Empire. And that would have been a topic very familiar to to all of those composers in that era because a lot of that was really starting to finally become more stable in their time. So that's why I think they were able to emulate that music and it, have it be okay, as opposed to have it be like some overt political statement or anything like that. But for Haydn, I think it really was um, influenced uh, from the military aspect in that, you know, in his symphony that is, as I mentioned, nicknamed the military symphony. It's a lot of bass drum and cymbals. Um, It's not, in my opinion, quite as melodically interesting of an example of Turkish influence in Western culture as the Mozart or the Beethoven examples that there are. And and all of them have several examples of this. It's not just like, you know, a one-off where Mozart just one time yeah. wrote something in Turkish style. This went through a violin concerto, there's piano concerto, there's uh, opera, there's, you know, I mean, they, this was a a part of their lives was that influence. So I think that's how those instruments came in really was them, uh, you know, realizing the color that it added for one thing. And then it just became more mainstream after that, you know, I mean, because the colors that it, Adds especially symbols, I think, um, especially symbols really made a huge difference in orchestral music down the road. I mean, percussion in general, just the expansion of the percussion section. You know.
1: So, who are we listening to next? Uh, well, let's listen
0: to. Let me see here. Well, that's let's listen to that Haydn example, just so you can hear. Um, you know, if you can recall the Beethoven, uh, just how. That was really cheerful in one way. Should we listen to half a second of the Beethoven, really sure. quick, just to remind ourselves of, of his sure. his interpretation, and then we can listen to um, a little bit of the Haydn. So this is Haydn's uh, version.
1: Sounds like minor key.
0: Yeah, that wasn't too uncommon actually. Okay. Um, But even then, you could hear there the emphasis on the beats, how it was rhythmically divided out. So this it kind of comes and goes in this movement. Which one are we listening to? Haydn's? Haydn's 100th symphony, his military symphony.
1: And this is the first movement or the second This is movement? the
0: second movement. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's just cymbals and bass drum, really, in the Haydn. You know, it's it's a little more subtle. Triangle. Triangle. So cool. there's a little bit of Haydn doing it. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. So and again, we'll listen to we'll listen to some Mozart, and then we'll probably end with a little more Beethoven. Yeah.
1: And when was that piece written, or what what time period are we about? We
0: are all in the classical era. era. This is all late seventeen hundreds.
1: Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, so to to speak to, I mean, I love hearing how they become an attribute to a you know, to a movement that would otherwise be really beautiful and kind of mellow. And obviously, it would depend on how Haydn's gonna collaborate, right? But yeah, I love the, just the attributes of like, that those instruments really bring to it. Just a whole nother dimension of like power. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, um, it's almost the opposite of what um, clay brings to the situation huh. because it's all about um, elegance, freshness. Most winemakers that use clay will say there is an element of freshness using using this vessel that there isn't if you use oak or a different a different type of carrying, you know. Yeah. Different type of vessel. Yeah. Different type of vessel. I didn't <laughs> want to use the vessel eight times. But one other thing I wanted to mention before I get on to the shapes and sizes. So um, we know that Quevery, or, or I should say ancient Georgian vessels, uh, the, the few that we have that date to, you know, 6,000 BCE, the actual shape of Georgian vessels now that we know of as the quevery, where they're kind of, it's Q-V-E-V-R-I. Yeah. Um, They're a little bit more kind of squat on top, and then they go down into this little like nipple on the bottom, they call it, where seeds fall into that nipple, and then you've got the skins that during fermentation and post-fermentation, they kind of fall on top, protecting the new wine on top from the seeds below that can cause off aromas. Okay. Um, it's also a lot easier to extract your wine that way okay? because uh, your wine is on top. But we know that that vessel, the Georgians have been using a very similar, if not exact vessel, the Quevery or the Western Georgian name for that, the Chudi, okay. um, since about the third Or fourth century of Mm. of common era. Okay, Um, what was before that, and quite a bit before that, um, was we've found ancient relics and um, depictions and actual like jars called what we would call dolia or dolium um, in ancient Rome, and they're like. Kind of bigger, more bulbous. They have like a wider top, and they think that those were better for fermentation because they were easy. It was easier for for you to scoop out the skins uh, from the top, which is really interesting. Um, Most people nowadays, I find it's very common for a lot of folks, wine folk or not, to just refer to all of these vessels as amphora. And technically, that's incorrect. Amphora is a, is a specific type of long, skinny clay vessel that has um, – it's completely – the bottom is like in an elongated nipple, we'll say, and it was – it had handles on it. And it was purely for stacking and shipping. Oh. And the easiest way to move that around was that that elongated nipple. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you weren't fermenting wine in there; you were storing wine in there, and you were shipping wine in it. Oh, okay. And so that wasn't um, necessarily a a way to 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 make wine, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've got dolia, cuvee, we've got uh, amphora. Another very popular vessel is one uh, from Spain has kind of coined the term. Most people know it as a tinaja, but it, it stems from a Latin word um, that is like it's kind of like if the dolia and the quevri were to have a kid. Okay, like it's got a little, the, the opening is a little wider on the top and then it gets you know bulbous, but the bottom is a little bit more narrow than say the dolia, okay. so it's a little bit less like a squatted egg. You know? Okay, and it's got, and this is very well known in a few different. Uh, villages in Spain right now for being like the center, the hub
2: mm-hmm.
1: of of clay vessel production, people around the world are either buying Georgian Quevery or Tinaja from Spain. Hmm. If you're you know living in the States, you're living in France, a lot of people are importing these vessels because they're so cool um, and have such great properties, which... You kind of wonder, like, well, why don't you just find clay around your area and yeah. find a potter and do that? But <laughs> I mean, I guess that takes a lot of know-how, and if you don't have a potter that has knows
0: how, yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> uh, you might be in for a lot of trial and error and time you don't have. But um, good point. We can we can talk more about vessels and time periods in a little bit, but I just wanted to throw out that there are various names for mm-hmm. different. Like sizes and shapes, and it's not just all amphora or all quevery, because now that people are hearing Georgia quevery, they're sort of like, oh, so this this guy in the Loire Valley, he's doing such cool wines and clay and quevery, and you're like, but are they are they from Georgia? Are they <laughs> in that shape? Because if they're not in that shape, they're probably called something else. I see, so, and all of them have different properties, okay, like for example, um, the quavery in and of themselves, they are, they, you know, of course, the insulation factor, of course, there's the exchange of oxygen, there's, they're easy to clean, we can talk about that if you're interested. But the fact that the yeasts, when you're fermenting, the yeasts are kind of like pushed up the side, the bulbous side on either side. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like a vacuum, they fall down the middle. Okay. And then they kind of keep getting shoved up and keep falling down the middle. So you get this continuous fermentation action. Oh, cool. Instead of them becoming like stagnant right. in a corner yeah. or, you know,
0: like stirs itself up yeah. while it's that's doing a, it.
1: That's exactly what happens. And, and that's, that's like I would say every one of these vessels, with the exception of Amphora, mm-hmm. all have really good yeast action. We'll okay. Say. Potential right. yeast action.
0: And I assume, therefore, they all taste different depending on the type of clay that's being used. to make, I mean, yeah, of course they would.
1: And, of course, it depends not only on the mineral content. Is it lined? Is it not? But I remember uh, the last time I was in the Republic of Georgia, um, a dear friend let me taste the same vintage, the same wine from the same vineyard, and one was in a 3,000-liter quevery and one was in a 2,000-liter (laughs) quevery. And that's just the same as saying... Like, oh, this was in a 225-liter barrel of oak mm-hmm. versus a 10,000-liter Fudra, like a huge Fudra. They're obviously mm-hmm. going to taste different. Yeah. And even the 500 into the 250 is going to taste different. So, mm. yeah, the size of Quivri definitely matters. Or, or here I am just interchangeably using Quivri. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> the size of the Dolia or the Amphora or yep. the tinaja, all that matters. All yeah. Right. I see. All right. Yes. Well, should we taste something? Yes. Let's taste. Um, this is from a really cool dude. Uh, his name is Zaza, and he makes wine in Quevry from multitudinous grape varietals, but this is this one is called uh, Ricazzatelli. I have it open. Um, we've had it open since a few nights ago. I did a talk at the U of M and spoke about um, Georgian wines and, and ancient flavors. This wine has been five years... In Quevery. So, this is a 2010 Ricotzatelli. It's just a pure joy that we still have it to taste from 2010. And Zaza is located in Kartli, which is just southeast of Tbilisi, the capital. Okay. Um, six months of skin contact.
0: Which is insane. Give or take. It's Not like, quite. it has this beautiful brown color. almost. It's like, yeah, it's like orange brown. It's, it's gorgeous. It's
1: a little bit, I mean, it, granted, it's been open since Friday, but it's a little bit vinegary. Not to taste. With like some dried apricot in the nose? Yeah, but the palate is not vinegary at all. Right. It tastes like if... Like apricot juice was dry. Like apricot kombucha. Yeah. But it's less vinegary than kombucha. Cheers. To Zaza. To Zaza. To Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh, that's good. It's weird. So do you notice... How bright and how acidic it is. Yeah. Like it's extremely fresh. And after five years in a Equivri, like after five years in oak, would this still have that freshness or would it sort of – I mean I, that, that's kind of a dumb question because it would depend on when it was harvested and so many other things. <laughs> but like this shouldn't be this refreshing. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to some Mozart.
0: Mozart, do you want to hear an example from his opera, or do you want to hear an example from his violin concerto?
1: Why don't we listen to one? them both?
0: Oh, well, I mean, we could, sure, yeah,
1: let's do that. Let's see how Mozart mixed it up a little bit in his use of Janissary-inspired instruments.
0: Yeah, because this the violin concerto example is neat because there isn't a percussion section, so the string players are actually kind of simulating percussive Uh, sounds. So let's listen to a little bit of that. And this is in the final movement of his fifth violin concerto. He wrote five, so this is also his final violin concerto. So this is, yeah, the the final movement of of that. So let's listen to a little bit of that, and I'll have to find the spot. ¶¶
1: But is it fair to say how it's more subtle? Like, it doesn't have symbols and triangles, but it's still the beat and the the bass or snare. It's the beat,
0: it's the grace notes in the melody, it's all kinds of those things. And it's 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 the the one, two, one, two, one, one, two, three. three. Yeah, it's that.
1: I do think that it sounds just a little bit more kind of subdued or elegant, would maybe be. Yeah. This well, is the, yeah, this without is the, the percussion, This is the clay yeah. version yeah. <laughs> of aging vessels. Exactly.
0: <laughs> okay. So this is from his opera, The Abduction, from the Seraglio. And this is all about Turkish mischievous characters, shall we say. So the overture itself shows us uh, an example of Mozart being playing, making music in a Turkish style. Hear the triangle in there and there's piccolo too in this example. So, yeah, there's a good Mozart example for you.
1: Uh, So a couple more things to say about clay. If Georgia is, in fact, the birthplace of wine, and, you know, we'll couple that in with Mesopotamia and, and perhaps a little bit further afield, a little further east. We know that clay moved west. We know that clay was used in Turkey later, you know, subsequently in Greece and Italy. It moved on to France and Spain. Not necessarily in France and Spain in that order. It yeah. might have even been Spain before it was honestly in France. <laughs> but fast forward to now, and there are people in the United States that are gonzo over clay. Nice. People are making clay. They're making their own pots. For example, there's a producer called Beckham in uh, in Willamette Valley, mm. and they're making in Oregon. Yep. Oregon. Or Oregon. Sorry, I don't
0: know why I said it like that. <laughs> I
1: never say it like or- in Oregon. I don't know why. Sorry, go on. Well, so uh, there's a really cool producer there who he was a, a teacher and a, a, a potter long before he was making wine. Okay. And he started making wine and then he started being like, I'm going to put my wine in some clay. Which yeah. Which is fantastic. Yes. Um, and his wines are absolutely incredible. And hmm. the fact that he's making his own clay, that's really cool to see him doing that. There's a, an actual Quivery maker in Texas. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never heard anybody, you know, say that these vessels are fantastic, but that's cool that someone's trying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of, uh, since Josco Gravner um a producer in northeastern italy and decades ago became disenchanted with making wine for points and big huge wines he looked to the republic of georgia and what they were doing for inspiration and decided to do a lot of his wines in clay underground and i think josco gravner honestly was the kind of the new light for clay fermentation and clay aging, because then that spread to a few other people, Colson in in Sicily, and then some, you know, some Spanish producers started to do it. People, a lot of people in Italy sourced their clay vessels from Spain. And that really, I think, started, you know, propelled this movement of people using clay to either ferment or ferment and age their wine. Um, That, you know, it it may have started as a a natural wine making, makes sense, kind of became this hipster cool thing. And now it's just like people are realizing that's just smart. Mm-hmm. Like it's a really intuitive way to make wine. And you're connecting the earth with the earth. Like it just makes sense. Yes. So. uh One more music? Yeah, one more music. And then I want to talk about fermentation temperatures just because I forgot to mention it and it is so okay. cool. All
0: right. Well, uh, the last example we're going to hear from today is from Beethoven. I'm using examples from uh, the classical era because that was when the the height of that influence was like a, it was like a it was like a popular hit. You know, people loved it. But you can find examples of that influence in the music of Brahms and Liszt. You know, a century later. So when we think about you know that time when we listened to when we heard the Beethoven example earlier, than we heard the Mozart and the Haydn, you know, we're talking late 1700s here. Well, in 1820, so this is a few decades later, you think people have probably kind of moved on from that trend, and they really kind of had, but then Beethoven goes along and he puts it in the middle of his last movement of his Ninth Symphony, which is a very, uh, shall we say, emotional work. <laughs> it's a very uh, stormy... Uh, that's that doesn't even do it justice. But that whole symphony is a powerhouse of emotion. And the Turkish march that comes in in the final movement is a little comical in a way because it seems so out of place, um, but it's really quite delightful. So let's listen to a little bit of this. Um, and and the Beethoven, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, just while I'm pulling up this musical example, that's the one with the Ode to Joy in it. Okay, so... That's the final movement of Beethoven Nine. So uh, this... Turkish march, you'll hear that theme in there, it's just a variation of it. It's got the triangle and the cymbals, the piccolo, and then the choir comes in and sings over it, which is great. way this exits then into the rest of the movement is amazing it's just amazing this whole thing is amazing now we go into a fugue like really beethoven okay so yeah (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: ha, yes
0: (laughs) Yes.
1: feud me all day. Mother, Mother fugers. Fuger. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyhow, that's uh, how Beethoven handled it in his Ninth Symphony. And in 1820, that was, you know, we were beyond that trend at that time. So it was a unique choice on his part. And, um, you know, you can find forums of people arguing about why he did that. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating to me. It was such an interesting choice, musically speaking. If you know the rest of the symphony and, you know, where that's housed in, it's just kind of... Uh, anachronistic in a way and um, I don't know it's just fun
1: To kind of wrap clay into the, you know, to give it context. I was talking about temperatures before. Yeah, and, and how, how it, like, keeps it consistent. Keeps it, yeah, low, it, you know, keeps it cool and keeps it warm when it needs to keep it cool, when it needs to keep it warm. So, for example, I saw this quote online from someone who did an article on Beckham, the guy who's making his own the pottery. Way. And his. Yep. Yeah. And so he says uh, that... You know, I think it was Spruge Magazine too, just to give them a little, you know, shout out because that's where I'm getting this this uh, quote from. But for two tons of fruit in a clay vessel, um, Beckham is able to achieve about a 30 to a 35 day ferment, so a little over a month. Okay. With a consistent, approximately 70 degree temperature, so that's considered quite low when we're thinking of like prime fermentation.
0: Okay. A low th- temperature?
1: A low temperature, okay. yeah. And you can go lower, but your, your yeast are really going to be struggling along. If you were to put that, those same two tons of fruit in wood or stainless steel, mm-hmm. you'd be getting about a 1.5-week ferment, give or take. Wow. But, so you're now you're shutting it by like three weeks, right. apparently. And with a temperature of right around 86 degrees Oh man! So talk about charging to the finish line. Yeah, you know, um, and not to say that one is better or yields like better results, but in the end, you're going to get a more complex ferment out of the first, more complete aromas, mm-hmm, etc., out of mm-hmm. the first ferment. Yeah. Um, than you are out of the latter. So, um, and this is this same type of statistic is something you could prove the world over. Well, so why can't you just temperature control it then? Absolutely, 100%. And a ton of people do that. Sure, but that's a whole other... But then you're not giving it the oxygen transfer. Right. Then you can tell when something's controlled and when it's not, right? Like think of someone who really likes to study. Yeah. And then think of someone who's forced to study. <laughs> yeah. Like the person who's forced to study is probably gonna do some work because they're forced to do it or they're grounded or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're just naturally you like to study, yeah, you're gonna notice those results. And mm-hmm. so if you're forced into temperature control in a stainless steel environment, you're gonna notice. And just I mean, then you've got all the other yeah. you know, the yeasts and how they move about in the, mm-hmm. in, the right. say, in said container. Yeah. Um is like I want to say an act of incredible act of science, but in the end it wasn't science back in the day. They didn't know. Yeah. And so it's like this beautiful piece of intuition that's right. come to us from thousands of years ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: that in the end it's like eat kimchi and yogurt because it's flipping good for you. <laughs> it's like <laughs> use clay because it's flipping awesome <laughs> and so many other reasons. But um, yeah. and uh, And that's not to say I don't love like Chestnut and stainless and stuff, but
0: yeah.
1: Hey, I'm empty. Uh, do you want? Do, I mean, I never get to say this. Do you want Turkish wine or do you want Georgian wine?
0: Uh, can you mix them?
1: <laughs> Probably could. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll What's, pour what some do you got? Is this, this okay, is Okay, this is the Turkish one. The Turkish one. So
0: this is red.
1: And both of these have no sulfur added. Yes, Turkish is red. Um, we'll put them up online, and I'll also put up a little, um, you know, recommended producers that are using clay whether they're, you know, mm-hmm. f- obviously many Georgian producers are, so I'll, I'll include some European producers and some American producers so people Love can it. go and hunt them down in their respective markets. That sounds great. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: Thank you for listening to episode twenty of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode, uh, including a playlist and a wine list, at patreoncom scores and Instagram at Scores and Pores. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreoncom scoresandpours, Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Inc.
1: Me all day.